don't know why that made me laugh. I just had to bring up my... <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 129 of the Implant Games Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Genthy. With me, my co-host, Matthew Schultz. Matthew, how are you? I'm good, and I must issue a deep apology to our listeners. Uh, I was just talking to you about um, the mic problems that... People may have been noticing episode after episode of consistently inconsistent quality from my side, and hopefully now things are squared away. So, my apologies. Recording audio is hard. <laughs> yeah. But just before we hit record, it reminded me of a story, because I was saying you should do my video narration, because you have a better voice for it than I do, and I always get feedback that I sound like Microsoft Sam, <laughs> whatever that is. I assume it's not good. Um and then uh, it's kind of funny, like once in a while, like somebody will like do that over and over, like every video they'll be, he was, it was kind of, it was pretty rude, but it's nothing that I haven't heard a million times. So it doesn't bother me, but he kept saying like, um, I, you're, I, you're editing and your scripts are so good, but it's hard for me to watch cause I can't stand your voice. So finally in the third time, I'm like, then just use the subtitles. <laughs> Why are you telling me about your problems? <laughs> And then as I was typing it, I was laughing to myself. And of course, you know, that was the end of that. But I, it did kind of make me like, why don't you just use subtitles if you're going to keep watching them? Like, I'm not making you watch these. Right. Well, at least you don't sound like Bonzi Buddy. Do you remember that thing? No, I don't know what that is. Oh, okay. Is it like Microsoft Sam? It was, yeah. For, for a while, it was like this little AI uh, purple gorilla that you would uh, install on your computer and it would say, you know, hello, Matthew, you have mail. Oh, damn. Uh, nice. Yeah, that was what, that was what he sounded Sounds like. Sounds like a TI-99-4A. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it was uh, this weird synthesized voice that uh, sounded like somebody was drowning Kermit. And uh, Man, we've come a long way with like Siri and <laughs> oh, Alexa. Yeah. They put and- the, the, the really good ones, the IBM voice ones, they put breaths in between uh certain points in the in the audio too it's kind of crazy you know it's funny i actually started doing that as i kept getting you know more and more comments that you sound like a robot i stopped editing out most of my breath noises yeah so like just now i inhaled before starting the next sentence as long as there's no pops or it doesn't get too loud like i leave 65 percent of them in and i did notice after i did that like i i mean i'm sure i'm better at projecting and changing my pitch and tone and things like that but like there was an immediate difference when i just started leaving a lot of those in that the robotic comments went down drastically yeah so that's funny that you mentioned that ibm added you know fake breath noises to their (laughs) to their automated i don't even know what you call that yeah the synthesized voices i'm not sure myself oh there you go yeah that's good enough yeah um all right so so what's been going on man what have you been doing all right so the last two weeks i have beaten sonic 06 or sonic the hedgehog 2006 twice and uh, here I am laughing. So it all went okay. I didn't die. <laughs> but now is the daunting task of writing a script. You know, so, crazy people laugh too. So uh, yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's a notoriously bad game, like we said before. But uh, I did get through it twice without uh, throwing a controller or anything. So it's not too bad. And uh, now I'll spend the the fifteen or twenty hours it's going to take to to write a script that isn't rehashing what everybody else has said before. It's a uh, a game that's been reviewed many, many, many times. So it will be a challenge to come up with something different, but I look forward to that. 
Yeah. And I am going to say one thing I noted, and this will probably go into the script, is that it kind of reminds me more so of E.T. for the Atari 2600, where it's a notoriously bad game. But most people that have actually tried to play it will admit it's not the worst thing in the world. Yeah. But the reputation it has far exceeds, you know, the quality right. of the game. Yeah. And I, unfortunately for Sega, like Sonic 06 is always going to have that E.T. reputation. Um, whether, you know, it's deserved or not, Sonic 06 is certainly not the worst game I've ever played, not by a long shot. But it does kind of remind me of E.T. And then um, I also, let's see here. So E.T. was like the notorious game of the 80s. Superman 64 was the notorious game of the 90s. And and Sonic 06 is kind of that bad game from the 2000s. Like yeah. every decade seems to have one of those games that is just universally hated. Yeah. And just <laughs> pop culture kind of picks, you know, over time picks the thing and, and the reputation precedes itself in a way. Mm-hmm. And, and it is kind of interesting. Now, from your perspective, I hate to put you on the spot like this too, um, but would you say it has this bad reputation as a Sonic game. Would you say it's one of the worst Sonic games you've played or would you say that's reserved for, for another? It very well. I mean, I haven't played them all. I still have to play Sonic boom for the Wii U. Um, but yeah, I would say it's like a bottom five. I would put it down. I mean, I would rather play Sonic 06 than Sonic spinball on the Genesis. Yeah. And I would rather play Sonic 06 than Sonic the Hedgehog Genesis on the game boy advance, (laughs) which is, easily the worst <laughs> it barely functions as a game yeah um so no definitely not the worst not by it could be a top five bad but i knew i recently maybe within the past month the angry video game nerd james rolf did a video on sonic 06 i think he's done it twice now i think he made the video and he kind of my memory could be mistaken me i think he only played a couple of levels and i don't know if it was supposed to be a two-parter and i just am misremembering or if Mm. you know the sonic fans got after him and he decided to at least beat beat the sonic campaign and do it right but anyway Anyway, he recently did one then he does a pretty good job of pointing out all the bs in the game <laughs> but like once you're on avgn i think that's it your your legacy is cemented so yeah there's a plaque and everything gets mailed but no, to you it's 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 i can name two whoops off the top of my head that are worse so there you go yeah all right, so something really weird happened right before the recording of this show. I, so last... At the, I see the what? note. <laughs> so at the end of our last episode, we kind of talk about, talked, we briefly touched upon, because we hadn't planned on talking about when do you know you have a problem buying games. Mm-hmm. So between the time I got home, made dinner, and then recording the show, I had like this half hour time period where I had to get three things done. And one of them involved finding this invoice I received in the mail and I needed to find that invoice so I could write a check, you know, stick it in an envelope and put a stamp on it. I guess there's probably some listeners that don't know what that means <laughs> once in a while you have a bill you can't pay online and you have to put a check in a mail and it's very odd but in this stack i found you know a bunch of stuff that could get thrown away so you know a bunch of like walmart and menards receipts then you know i, d- I don't need to hang on to those i don't know why they're in this pile uh, but then i found this receipt from press start games in appleton and there was three games on here bugs bunny double trouble 
uh, a $5 Game Boy game and RoboCop versus the Terminator on the Super Nintendo. And I'm like, that's really weird. I got somebody else's receipt. That's what I said out loud. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, maybe it's maybe maybe I, let me just double check. So I go into the game room. I have most of my games in the closet. And sure enough, the game at the end of the Super Nintendo shelf is RoboCop versus Terminator. <laughs> and I do not remember buying this at all. So then I'm like, what in the hell is Bugs Bunny Double Trouble? And I really didn't know what that was. So I had to go on Google and figure out what system it was for. And this is a Sega Genesis game. So I go to the Sega Genesis shelf. Uh, and there is a boxed Bugs Bunny Double Trouble. And then I went to the Game Boy shelf, and sure enough, there's Super Monkey Ball, $5. And I'm like, so I, I have, don't remember I have buying a, this. I have a confession as well. <laughs> um, and it's funny because I was going to put a note about this and say, let's revisit. Because we kind of, I kind of made a resolution for New Year's uh, last episode. And um, so basically... Yeah, I I've already failed in in my own rules that I had set up, and I have. Let me. My receipt is from November twenty fifth, twenty seventeen. So you're so. you're good. You're good. That was last year. That was old, Chris. So yeah, I picked up. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I picked up um, Steam World Big Two, which I haven't even played the first Steam World, and this is my buyer psychology at work here, where I was like, well, I have the first one, and the reviews for the second one are so good, so. If if I get it while it's on sale, then you know when I, when I play the first one, I'll, I'll have gotten a deal. And and this is how my brain works when I'm on buyer mode. And uh, so yeah, if I don't, I I put it to myself that if I don't stream myself playing this game or make a video or something with regards to SteamWorld Dig Two, then I have failed uh, my resolution already, and I have bought a game that I have honestly no intention of, of uh, being able to dive <laughs> you're into you're not going to beat this game are you <laughs> no I don't think it's going to happen I'm, I'm I'm eager to in my mind and I think this is the problem I I brought it up and I've brought it up in our notes and stuff like that and while we were thinking about topics for the show and I I I do know recognize that I, I have some sort of like compulsive problem it's not as bad anymore simply because of my financial constraints now but and that's part of the reason why I put myself in the position I am at right with uh, my my sort of my life choices is to try to curb this uh, weird uh, impulsive behavior when it comes to this kind of purchasing habits. Do they have like a, a Steam Anonymous? Oh, I'm sure. I well, I'm well. I, the one thing is I'm pretty good <laughs> about Steam. Um, I'm not much of a PC gamer. Having a Mac primarily as my power machine yeah, that also helps, helps, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I had you know a powerful PC, that'd probably be a different story. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, we've, you probably don't, you're so good about keeping track of what you're spending and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of funny that, that you have this story in the first place. I feel like, um, do <laughs> well, we I know in hindsight, in hindsight, I'm like, okay, I know that I will enjoy super monkey ball junior. I think I said super monkey ball advance, super monkey ball junior for the game boy advance. I know I will enjoy the game and I know it will be a cheap games pick for this podcast. And I have a feeling that I will enjoy RoboCop versus Terminator. And again, it's less than $10. Um, I really, I enjoyed the Terminator on Sega CD. So this is the sequel made by Virgin games. Um, and it's been recommended to me a few times. So I figure there's a good chance I will enjoy it. 
And even if I never review it on the channel, it's something I can talk about on the podcast. But Bugs Bunny and Double Trouble, I have no idea what on earth would possess me to buy that other than it was... Like, I just don't know. Maybe it was like a, I think it might've been like a buy two, get one free mm, sale. Yeah. November 25th. Was that the day after Thanksgiving or that weekend? Yeah, it could have been. But I mean, it's I, still like stupid because <sighs> I'm not going to review any of these games on the YouTube channel and get the, that money back. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I, I have, I have made an error. I should have bought one of these games and saved myself $20. Yeah. Well, um, let's just uh, keep reminding so I each ran other. A, we... I ran it by my wife and I said, I, I think I have a problem. And she said, yeah, you're just realizing this now. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, you know what? We should start the first, uh, you know, uh, AA equivalent for, for gamers. Gamers Anonymous. Is that? Yeah. That's, that's... Implant Games episode 130. It'll be therapy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the 12 steps. <laughs> Uh, uh man i have a question for you yes what do you call your profession um i'm not afraid to call myself a reseller uh be- okay because i think in people's vernacular if if i say something like i'm sure even if you when you say you're a youtuber to say like a relative they're probably that doesn't translate into anything to them um, I don't even say that to anybody. Right. I don't even tell. I don't tell my coworkers I have a YouTube channel. I don't tell my fam. I don't talk about it. Yeah, and because then I'll yeah. There's a weird reputation there, especially yeah. over the past year. Well, I found it's it's fascinating where I say you know oh what do you people ask what you do and and I say well I I resell um I I buy and I I'm a reseller. And even then they're like, what, what is that? And, uh, so I, you know, I basically say, well, I find things that people want to buy online and I buy them and then I sell them. (laughs) And, uh, it's funny to me that, that even that concept is, is for, it happens to me with a lot with family where they just don't get it. And it's like, well, when you go to target, those things were purchased by target to sell, you know, that's why there's an MSRP and all that kind of stuff. But it's just, it's, it is weird for people to grasp i guess that it's Couldn't possible you to be explain su- it differently like i, I go to th- i find things that are for sale for extremely cheap and then i flip them on ebay for more money yeah i suppose i suppose well and it, i'm just throwing it out yeah there. <laughs> yeah it's probably part of my delivery that's the problem too but i i it is kind of interesting joe just in general the confusion of the the idea of just like well I buy things and I and then, and then I sell them for for more money, um it's it's interesting to me but I think that the hard thing for some people to grasp is that it's possible to do that and live off of it, and I think that's where um people that are closer to me are confused about what's happening. <laughs> Um, when I show them my garage, I think their, their fears are, are squelched a little bit and they're like, Oh, this is a real business. You know, it looks like a real business. There's a bunch of stuff in here and you've got it. It looks like an office and everything. So, but yeah, it's, that is interesting. Um, what come, what I'm curious, what made you, uh, want to ask that? I don't know. I was thinking of YouTuber and I'm like, does that make Matthew an eBayer? I suppose so. And I'm, then I'm the, like, is eBay or a word? Well, like, within I don't it's know like the YouTuber, eBay really. It's a, a communal thing. And within the community, that's how most, like, there are a series of, of uh, YouTubers, you could say, that are eBayers that talk about eBaying on YouTube. And yeah, they just refer to themselves as eBayers. Um, so it's that's vernacular that exists within the community. But I don't think outside of it means anything to anybody. 
That's not what I'm going to name the show, but I love eBaying on YouTube. For some reason, that amuses me as well. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I know like Pete Dorr will do stream sessions where he just is shopping, right? I think I think that's... I have no way. Dude, <laughs> Pete Dorr is so 2010. I, I, no. <laughs> oh, man. Shots no, fired. I, I I've I don't I, I don't mean that like to be mean. Right. I, I literally don't think I've I've seen a Pete Dorr video. No, since no. He, he's specifically yeah. I think he's primarily doing streaming now too. That's his that's his uh, own thing. But, yeah, I'm not. I don't. Yeah, yeah I'm, I don't understand Twitch. So <laughs> way out of my wheelhouse. I guess that's why I'm not familiar with him anymore. Yeah. So, All right, sorry. So no. what have you been up to? <laughs> well, uh, I've been working on the the cloning of Pac-Man, and I've got a uh, ghost on the on the game field, and I've got some pathfinding going on. So my fears are are over with whether or not I can tackle AI. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting the kinds of problems that I've had to solve. Um, I have definitely done some research as to the... Uh, I, w I almost wanted to do a whole thing talking about ghost AI in, in Pac-Man, but I think I'm just going to save that maybe for some other time. But, um, the primary kind of hurdle or leap that I had to be able to make was to have the ghost make a decision as to what direction to go when it's faced with more than, uh, one choice. Because when you're playing Pac-Man, um, the ghosts are always moving forward. So if they hit a wall and it veers to the right, then they'll go right. The only time they change direction is when they're switching from uh, something called like chase mode to um, retreat. And then there's also fright. That's when you get a power pellet and they just bolt. Um, so, yeah, so I tackled that and it's kind of an interesting problem to, to try to deal with. But the, the way that I did it was when you when you, the ghost reaches a fork in the road where there's more than one uh, one decision to make as to where to go. Um, I can send it a signal to say, you want to go in this direction. And that right now it's set to me, but I know that the ghost AI is actually a little more complicated than that. Um, because it, you know, they try to flank and things, but, um, so at that point it reads the, the choices that it can make and it draws and it, you could say it, it draws a vector, an invisible line from those decision points to the, the Pac-Man. And then it measures the shortest distance and says, that's the one I'm going to take. And so that's how I've got it, making decisions on, on what direction to go. And there's a couple of little weirdness issues that I'm having to deal with, but that's, that's my little update on my programming adventure of uh, cloning Pac-Man. But it's, it's actually coming together very, very rapidly here. Um, so it's kind of exciting. Good. Yeah. So then where do, where do you go from there? Well, the plan is to, um, I'd like to introduce multiplayer where people can be the ghosts and you can be the Pac-Man and then I'd like to do level editing and then the plan is to reskin the whole thing and start this is not Pac-Man right <laughs> take it all away once I get the cease and desist from Namco and then no but uh basically just strip all that out and um, change the 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 go the quote unquote ghost behavior and and a lot of the conceptual the main ideas of Pac-Man and make it a basically kind of a new maze style pursuit chase pursuit game like Pac-Man but something completely different and then hopefully sell it so that's the goal um, and so that it's like when I was doing eBay as a side hobby you know I had my my main job and now this is kind of taking that place I've been streaming about two hours every night. And, uh, 
been making a lot of progress. So right next to me, well, about three feet away is my Vectrex and the game that is in the Vectrex and the overlay that is on the screen is Clean Sweep, which is a Pac-Man clone and it's a vacuum cleaner vacuuming up money. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the theme that they went with. I had the idea. It's so funny. I had the idea of a lawnmower that was like doing yard work, but you could oh, also you, you could also tell it the ghosts would be gophers, and then it would have a bloody end to the to the to the gophers. But, well, yeah. But that's that was one idea that I had. But I'm like, it's a little too morbid. And well, they could have green blood. You know, yeah. it's a Super Nintendo game. It is interesting. You know, one. I'll I'll just end with this. I'll stop talking about Pac Man here. But the the one interesting thing that I've found is is because I have been conceptualizing different ideas of okay, well, how do we reskin this and everything? And it goes back to that that talk of those XMIT guys when they were trying to clone or trying to ROM hack uh, Pac-Man with what eventually became Miss Pac-Man. But before that, it, I forget the name of it, what, what it was called. I don't remember. Um, and the problems that they had are the exact same problems that I'm having, wherein Pac-Man is this circular shape and wherever direction he's going, that's where his mouth is facing. And so it, it translates really well to the player as to what's going on. But the minute you decide to go, okay, well, I want it to be a humanoid figure that's standing and now when it's going up, it ne- I need to see its back. And then the other, you know, the other way it needs to be facing me. And, and then suddenly you have all these perspective issues. And it's, re- yeah. it's really interesting to me because the, the ghosts are the opposite. So Pac-Man's portrait and the ghosts are facing you um, head on. And so it, it's just the decisions that they made at the, that are actually, I'm appreciating sort of the, the ingenious. Yeah, the brilliance behind it is, is, is pretty amazing really um but yeah that's that's a little bit of appreciation to pac-man there so yeah all right this is a show where we talk about youtube and that's one of my favorite topics along with collecting and whatever else i used to say in the intro collecting youtube collecting rich i don't know something else and more um but so last week or this week last week youtube announced yeah i guess it's monday it had to have been last week a bunch of changes to the youtube partnership program um this came out around the same time is it logan paul or paul logan i don't remember his name Uh, i think it's logan paul problem with having logan two first Paul's. names yeah yeah and i've never heard of him had you heard of him uh n- only because i do sometimes watch the philip defranco show and he, okay. he's he's come up a few times on that so gotcha yeah so this is a channel that i don't watch and you're familiar with but he obvious i don't even know how i don't i still haven't watched any of his videos i, I guess you would call it a mischief channel or a prank channel yeah i feel like it's that? it's you know like uh johnny what was that mtv show back in the day jackass yeah it's kind of a modern um jackass basically for anybody who's our age <laughs> yeah well that's why yeah st- i remember like listening to eminem while watching jackass and i turned out okay <laughs> so stuff like that but he was kind of a dumbass and he did his whole thing in the suicide forest in japan and uh, made his video got millions of views and then somebody our age must have stumbled upon the video somehow and then it became this you know another dramatic youtube thing where one of youtube's top 100 stars is you know emb- 
embarrassing the company and embarrassing the platform. And that happened. And then a week or whatever later, they make these YouTube partnership programs, which kind of don't feel like a response to that particular event, if I'm honest. No, and and they had already made one change this year with regards to partnerships and being able to be a partner, if I recall correctly. And so earlier, yeah, last year at some point they changed. I don't know if this was to the PewDiePie drop in the end bomb. I don't remember. At some point they decided you cannot be a YouTube partner until you have 10,000 lifetime views. They've stepped that up even farther and you cannot monetize. That's why you become a YouTube partner. Or maybe it means the same thing. Um, you have to have 1,000 subscribers and at least 4,000 hours of watch time over the past 12 months. And every channel on YouTube, which I'm sure is millions, um, that doesn't meet those thresholds will lose their monetization sometime next month. Mm. Yeah. In the future, when somebody does meet the 1,000 subscribers, 4,000 hours of watch time, um, and apply for partnership, those partnerships will, they say manually reviewed, which I believe means that a person is actually going to review the content instead of an algorithm to determine if monetization will be enabled. Yeah, and I think that's kind of an. I think it's going to be very cursory review, um, and that's just to stop the people who are maybe exploiting um, children in particular with with uh, a lot of the kids content that is using keyword. Yeah, wasn't there like the Elsa? I, I I'm yeah. so lost when it comes to some of this stuff because I just don't tend to watch crappy content in my opinion. <laughs> right, and there's so, there's a so whole group of, of people is... that just you do keyword hacking where they they put up videos and it's like spaghetti videos and they just see what sticks and they go, okay, well, what if we make a video with these keywords and we, and, uh, you know, it's all targeted towards kid, but it's some pretty, um, some pretty messed up stuff sometimes. So I have a feeling the manual review is just to prevent, um, those guys from being able the to children style videos. Yeah. And I, so I guess, and you've got a lot of thoughts on this. I'll let you, you kick it off. So normally, to me, this is all pretty benign. Uh, I know that for a lot of people, a thousand subscribers or 4,000 watch time hours equals 240,000 watch time minutes over a 12 month period of time seems like an insane amount, uh, an unobtainable amount. And I can definitely empathize with somebody that would be upset by those changes when they're not the ones going to Japan and filming bodies hanging in a suicide forest. Like, I definitely get that. And that's what I'm saying. Something, <laughs> event A doesn't really seem to me to get to item or you know event b like maybe this was already going to happen and then you know just by coincidence this was the timing yeah but like usual once youtube does something particularly twitter i swear to god twitter is where like it's like the dumping ground it's like a raw feed of like everybody's consciousness like i don't see this on facebook i don't see it on youtube i don't see i guess those would be the two social you know networks that i participate in 
I, Twitter is just something else. So immediately, of course, I start to see a lot of anger, which is to be expected anytime there's a change. But the first thing that caught my eye was this notion that demonetized videos or non-partnered videos won't be promoted. And you can know immediately that whoever started that rumor has no idea how YouTube works and promoted isn't really a thing that exists on YouTube anyway. And then two other rumors that constantly flew around were that um, people that were losing their partnership would have a 15-minute time limit per video, and they would no longer have access to custom thumbnails. And those are absolutely false as well. And those were even addressed on, on the YouTube official blog, community blog. So it's it annoys me when this stuff happens and it annoys me that people believe it so quickly without doing even just a little bit of research. Right. And the thing that actually kind of bothered me the most, and I don't know why it did, but I saw a lot of chatter about specifically being really angry at larger YouTube channels saying something like, I don't want your advice. If you're above 10,000 views, you know, you are part of the problem. Just like a lot of vitriol aimed at people that are, you know, not going to be affected by the 1,000 subscriber, 4,000 watch time hour changes. And that is what really baffled me more than anything, because I am not... I, I just, it blows my mind. If you've listened to this podcast since 2011 or 2010 or whenever it started, like in you and I, me in Austin or me by myself, I have always promoted and gave shout outs to high quality, small channels. We did just last episode, if I recall. We just did it with Vince19. Yeah. Um. So I try to do my part, but on the flip side, I don't... You know, I don't tell people to check out a video if it's not very good. And, you know, that's just part of me being honest. I'm not going to recommend (laughs) watching terrible content or subscribing to, you know, channels that aren't very good. That's just not in me. Um, But something about that whole, oh, big, you know, YouTubers don't understand. You guys suck. You're not helping us. You're not sticking up for us. Blah, blah, blah. It really kind of annoyed me a little bit. Because I don't, I a view myself as big. I'm, I'm not. There's four hundred thousand channels that are bigger than I, but just the, the anger, completely misdirected. Like I don't know why you would get mad at any large YouTube. Why would you get mad at Metal Jesus? Why would you get mad at GameSack? Why would you get mad at Matt Pat? Like why would you direct your anger that way? That's so weird to me. Right. If anything, directed at YouTube, they're used to it. But to just kind of lash out as a as a group, it's just very strange to me. And that's what kind of got me tweeting about this. Because usually I would just let it go. I don't care. YouTube can make whatever changes they want. There's nothing I can do about it. And bitching about it ain't going to make it better. Right. So why would I put my effort into that when I could be working on getting through a second playthrough of Sonic 06? Because that is what's more important to me. But I'll kind of... Um, Unless you had something to say there. No, I mean, I, I'm, I totally understand. And, and I think part when you specifically identify Twitter, I think what happens with Twitter and sometimes I get caught up in it is um, Twitter is great to accelerate the conversation because of the way that its timeline works. Uh, it creates a fear of missing out. And as a result, when, when a, a quote unquote controversy starts to happen, 
people feel a need to weigh in before they've gathered all their thoughts and facts. And so what you're describing, the the misinformation, the spread of misinformation, the reaction, people being upset, um, just like YouTube has its design and it's, it's set up a certain way and they've made this decision with the watch time and the subscriber count and partnership and monetization, Twitter makes its decisions on its design for its own benefit. And part of that ends up giving you, you know, this kind of this mess that Twitter uh, produces. It's it's just like YouTube. YouTube wants you to stay on YouTube as long as possible. Twitter wants you to stay on Twitter as long as possible for the same reason. And that reason is feeding you ads. Right. So when, you know, there is bogus stuff that people start replying to and retweeting and liking. Yeah, it just moves it up so that more people like it, retweet it and comment. People stay on the website so that they see more ads. Yeah, and you've got a you've got a bullet, a nice set of points here to make um, coming up. And the only other, I mean, the only other thing I'll say, like right now, is that th- both platforms are trying to make decisions that it 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 desires uh, end result that is beneficial to itself. the The risk that that YouTube takes with with its changes is something that there's a video that Matt Pat. Or um, he's the uh, he's the uh, game theory. Yeah, the game theory guy. And and he made a really good um, point as far as his understanding of the algorithm. And I think he has better insight on it just because he does work with YouTube. Uh, his videos on this stuff are the best. The one he did on. Th- well, before the partnership changes, he did one on the Logan loophole. Yeah. And and that in particular, the the tie in of how videos can be put on trending based off of third party sites linking to them and and the problem that that creates. So YouTube has to, its platform and its reputation can be changed by these decisions. And what I think is, is something that, that you're, you know, you've got coming up is that in the end, this might be a good thing. And it looks bad right now. The only complaint I have about what they're doing is that they're not letting people cash out of their AdSense, which I think is a little messed up because what yeah. happens to that money? And I think that's that's a little scummy to have people, you know, generate um, a source of revenue for you as a company, cut them off from ever cashing out on it because there is a limit. Uh, you have to, it's a hundred bucks, I think, in order to mm-hmm. cash out on AdSense. And basically... You know, if they were doing it as a hobby, that money is now kind of trapped for them um, and they might not ever be able to reach it. And I think that's a little a little messed up. But I think this is possibly something that they're trying to do to to create uh, thresholds to to better their their quality. You know, they there are more YouTube videos than there are ads to serve those videos. Here's the first part. So, yeah, the first thing that got me is that if you actually look at the money, like the actual dollar value, it's almost, almost insignificant. So I looked, I actually did the math. It was almost five years before I hit 1000 subs. It was like September of 2010 through May of 2015, I think. Um, so yeah, less than three years ago, I had less than a thousand subs. Um, and through that five year time span, I think I had 
made $80.85. And if I figured that all out, and it was like, you know, four years, eight and a half months or something like that, it was $1.43 a month over five years. Yeah. That was it. Mm-hmm. Like, that was literally it. Yeah. Like, Yes, $80.85 is a decent chunk of change. You could go buy a brand new video game for any platform for that amount of money or, you know, (laughs) buy a bunch of $10 Genesis games (laughs) and not remember what they were. Um, And it's just, it's like when you spread that out over five years and you did a similar thing, you determined it was after five years, you're less than a thousand subs and you had made $65. Yeah. And it could have been a lot more. My view count was actually pretty high, but that was because I made the mistake of putting in some licensed music in a video that became extremely popular Uh every single year. So, um, that, that was my mistake, but yeah, it's pretty, pretty bad. Did I lose you? Man, you're cutting out on me. I know it'll be fine in the podcast, but <laughs> I don't know when you stop talking. Oh, okay. Well, but yeah. So it. Go ahead. I understand taking money out of somebody's pocket is a you know pretty huge deal, but when you look at it logically and not emotionally, what I kind of equate it to. Are you able to hear me or no? Yeah. Yeah, I can. I don't know what's happening. I'm going to bring up the chat. Um, can you hear me? I've sent you a message. (laughs) Skype, where's the chat? I I can hear you laughing at me. Okay. (laughs) It appears, I assume somebody in the basement is playing on Xbox live and that's why I just had a weird bandwidth issue. Um, but it, the thing that it reminded me of, you know, those people that will like drive all the way to the other side of town to save three cents on a gallon of gasoline. Right. But when you do the math, it actually doesn't save you money. It's like, okay, so you have seven gallons at a three cent. That's 21 cents. Right. And you do the time and, and all that. It just doesn't. 80 doesn't. cents a month. Yeah, it does. It's ridiculous. Like. That's what this reminds me of. Like, yeah. it reminds me of spending all of that effort to drive across town to save 21 cents. Mm. And I know a dollar or dollar 43 or whatever I worked out is a lot, is more than that. But like, in the grand scheme of things, it's nothing. Because then at that point, you hit your thresholds and that's it. Like, it's <laughs> the fact that it was $80 over five years is kind of like, wow, I really didn't generate that much value in those five years. Yeah. Um, we're not talking about people when, gosh, I remember hitting like a thousand subs and I I don't think I was making more than $10 a month. So even after I hit the, like, let's say the theoretical threshold, I'm still waiting 10 months before I hit a hundred dollars and get paid. It's not like somebody is all of a sudden taking away something out of your paycheck or out of your pocket. Well, the other thing to consider is that YouTube has a responsibility to bring value to to their uh, advertisers and the and, viewers. Right. And so there's two things going on, I think, that that aren't being recognized. One, there is an exodus of abs- advertisers from YouTube. Um, recently, YouTube has been seen as an iffy place to run advertisements because of some major news outlets and the, and the coverage that they've given to where their ads are being placed. So YouTube has itself been seeing advertisers leave and so it it has to kind of regain control of its image and if making it so that there's a quality level for ads 
cuts out. Um, I mean, look at look at what's happening already, right? So you're describing, let's say, it costs so many number of hours to employ someone to do the manual review. Well, in theory, the the you know we described what like sixty two dollars or whatever it was for me to to get that one th- close to one thousand over however many years uh, of viewerships and and all of that. So the the money incentive needs to be there for that manual review process to 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 bring that threshold level up so that there are some i i feel like there is a logic behind the decision making that's happening here that's harder to see because that it hasn't been communicated by youtube and it might be for competitive reasons or or whatever but i do feel like it's partly to regain some control over their image it is funny and and tough pill to swallow right now given what's happened with you know one of their bigger youtubes youtubers and and this particular video that went up and and the controversy around that but i do think that these are efforts made by youtube to to improve uh the quality of place the their uh the platform as a whole and as a result of that it may have a positive impact on the value of uh what do they call it? Like the CPM or whatever, um, for, for the ads themselves. And it may mean a higher monetary reward for anybody who can make that threshold. Uh, so these are all things that I think are happening. It's just that it's not being necessarily communicated. I think part of the problem is, is YouTube. I don't think they do communicate the whys because they're afraid of people gaming the system. Right. Because that's exactly how this Japan, and I don't mean to take it lightly. Like if, if you've lost somebody from suicide, like it's the, the, the topic is very sensitive and I, I don't mean to talk about it. Like it's no big deal. Um, but the very, you know, the algorithm is what made these style of videos even possible is the lack of some sort of, you know, human oversight and just trusting the algorithm, you know, just like you and I watched Jackass, you know, in 2002, you know, now people, you know, in their late teens, early twenties are, you know, watching the current generation of that. And I mean, a lot of people watched it. So yeah, I don't remember where I was going with that. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. But I, yeah, I think that it's just a, it's a, it's an imaging issue that, that, that YouTube is trying to yes. tackle. And I, I do think this is actually a very minor course correction as well, because they clearly, uh, I said this year, but I did mean last year cause I forget what day it is, but it's 2018, <laughs> but yeah, YouTube, it, it was clear that they were going to start making changes to the thresholds and, uh, tweaks to, to partnership in general. Um, and I, I can jump over to one of my thoughts that I have, um, which is that, you know, YouTube often makes these changes without saying that they're even happening. That's that's how this whole uh, sort of reaction to the demonetization adpocalypse started to, to form was because YouTube wasn't saying anything and they didn't even have a gooey representation of what was happening until later. People just saw that their videos were no longer monetized right. and it was like a what the? Yeah. And so... They're now they're actually uh, I'll give them credit because they're actually they're It's only 30 days warning, but they're saying, hey, this change is coming. Here's what to expect. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't, hey, look what we changed three weeks ago right. without telling you. Could you could you imagine the backlash <laughs> if they just made the change? And I think they, they might have understood that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is kind of new for for them. Uh, 
as a company, which is really strange to say, but they're the big dog. They're, they're doing something in the future instead of announcing <laughs> something in the past. Right. I agree with you. I did not think of that, but you're you're absolutely right. They've they're actually changing something in the future and giving people warning. I guess I so the first thing, the anger over such a minuscule amount, it, it to me doesn't make sense. Like I said, I just there's better things to do with my time than drive across town to save 21 cents on gas. Right. It's not a productive use of my time. The next particular thing that I was just baffling to me is the the rumor that, oh, if I don't meet these thresholds, then my videos aren't being promoted. And again, you're going to have to try to make me not sound like an ass. Um, that's what you're here for. <laughs> See, on the, on the old video, when I did this as a 30-minute video, I would just edit out, like, oh, I'm not saying that. <laughs> but now I don't edit them, so... <laughs> I'm leaning on you. <laughs> if you don't have a thousand subscribers right now, your videos probably aren't being suggested. And if they were being suggested, not promoted, suggested, you would have a lot more subscribers. Now, I look through all of the videos, Matthew, just because you're a good sample size of what an average below 1,000 subscriber looks like, you can see that you have that one Star Wars screensaver that has 333,000 views. And then the next one below that is the Amiibo video, where you show how to cut the plastic on. <laughs> an amiibo yep. and have access to the character but then it's also still a display case and that has like 15,000 right so imagine my frustration so the, the Star Wars video is a guide on how to cut Star Wars snowflakes the other one is a guide on how to cut open an amiibo box so, I have put hours and hours into edited review content and I cannot compete against those stupid the, the amiibo video I did in 15 minutes um, and so to that, as a YouTuber, that's what I struggled against was one, I, I, over time I was creating a seesaw effect with subscribers cause I get subscribers for these weird one-off videos and it, it's really, it, it's frustrating for me because I know if I took that angle, I could probably have success with it. Um, but it's, I also know that it's not something that I want to do. But YouTube is a system, it's a series of uh, algorithms, and, and it's favoring long-form videos and all these things. And if I did... Well, even the, the Amiibo video isn't even long. No. No. And if it has 15,000 views, and you have less than 1,000 subscribers, that means that video absolutely has been suggested in the past. Oh, yeah. I could, uh, I could find out from where, um, actually while we're talking about this um yeah but uh, it was, it's totally like that is just total like nonsense like <laughs> you can look yeah 47 you know, percent of the views are from suggested videos Ex yep um and that's for the amiibo one and then if how we, is it 47 what are the other ones from um, where are the other views it's uh well i'm pretty good about seo outside of youtube if you can believe that so is that search yeah um is number two external so it's been embedded somewhere is 28% and then YouTube search is 20. Um, and then the other, the other star Wars snowflakes, and these are videos that I've actually taken They're They're technically still public, but they're not, um, monetized. <laughs> yeah. Well that, and, um, the star Wars one is actually quite the opposite. It's external. Uh, it's been hosted on some major sites. And so 91% of the views are external. Um, and so, but that, that gleans some insight onto the YouTube, YouTube algorithm, mm -hmm. right? 
Um, Absolutely. Uh, suggested videos is only 2% of the views for that. And then YouTube search is only 4%. Uh, so these, it's, it's really, but I think, I think you're right on that. And it, uh, it's one of the notes that I, that I made was that uh, the, the focus on long form, you can look at it as an opportunity. Or you can look at it as, as a loss. So one way you could game it is if you are making shorter videos, well, maybe you could do a theme and then stitch those together into a longer video and then uh, unlist the shorter videos as you were posting them and maybe make a long form video as like the final complete version or something like that. But the the thing that, it, like to your point, is, you know, it's kind of like tough love. It's it's tough. You know, that's sort of the answer. And if if YouTube is focusing on longer form videos then it's it's like okay well then perhaps um there's two things you can withdraw from that information and one is that there are going to be fewer opportunities to become a suggestive video unless you make long form videos that have good watch times and so that's probably um the metrics that you should be looking at and focusing on especially if you're already making longer videos um is to go okay where where is the drop-off point happening is it my one minute long intro video that plays between every single video with the music and all that kind of stuff. Could I cut that out and make that, make it get to the point quicker that those kinds of changes. Um, but now's the opportunity to compete. It's not even, I'm looking at PewDiePie. I tried to find Paul Logan, but he's not coming up at the top of the search results, <laughs> <laughs> but our pal PewDiePie, 11 minutes, 13 minutes, 12 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, seven minutes, 10 minutes. 10. These are not, you right. don't have to make a 90 minute epic feature. The main thing is to keep people the whole time, right? I mean, that's the, that's the goal is to keep them all the way to the end. If you can, it's not clear to me how much retention as a unit of time matters and how much retention as a percentage of the video matters. I don't know. I will tell you for the people that are like me and make videos that are, you know, above 40 minutes, um, a 35% retention rate is pretty good. Yeah. Um, on my 3DO video, which is 36 minutes, the retention rate is holding at 49%, which is actually uh, a little better than usual for me. Um, but those don't sound like a lot, because if I do a 10-minute list video, those retention rates are going to be like 75%. But those aren't going to, you know, 75% of 10 minutes is a lot shorter than 49% of 35 minutes. I guess what I'm trying to say, let me, let's bounce back over here, is that going with that suggested content, the searched content, the embedded in an external website content, and I mean this to the few people that actually complain. So most people know that there's not a huge audience for a pickup video where you show everything, you know, that you bought in the month of December. Somebody like Metal Jesus can probably get away with that. And I don't know why I don't watch them. Maybe there's some more humor or something really interesting about the way he does those. But for like the average small channel, doing a pickup video, doing a boxing on video, doing a packaging review like those are never going to be searched for most of your subscribers are not going to watch those videos and nobody's going to embed that into a forum or a news website or blog like right. that type of if that type of content doesn't work then stop doing it <laughs> well and, you know, right. you know we've discovered you should make a show about cutting things with scissors 
Yeah. Because clearly there's a niche market there that you've left. <laughs> How to an instructional videos. Absolutely. And trust me, it's it's on my mind right now as I'm doing the game maker stuff. I'm, I'm considering pivoting uh, and, and going in that direction because of, of, uh, I'm already just getting kind of my old audience back watching me stream this stuff. And it, it, it's something that I'm, I, as, as somebody who would love to be doing that kind of stuff is I'm considering that myself, but yeah, you have a choice. You can fight a system that you're willingly participating in, or you can leave it. I mean, those are really your options. The, the, the fact that YouTube has made these decisions are what dictates what could make you successful on YouTube. That's it. You can continue to make your videos, but if you're not going to play by its rules in order to be successful, then you really don't have much ground to, to make a complaint about it. Yeah. Because, you know, the only thing that you could really say is they don't make it clear, but then I would say... Well, they do have a guide and it's actually quite thick, uh, with full, full of information. It's, it's hours of videos and, and tests you could take, uh, that tell you how to, to work their system, you know, the way that they want you to. And, um, I know you've suggested it on Twitter, but you have competitors that you can look at and there are tools out there free to use that you can look at and and start to get an idea of what is it that they're doing and you have eyes and ears and you can watch their videos and go what are they doing that i'm not and all well, of these even a quick thing like i went to your channel i went to the videos and i sorted by most viewed i do that with a ton of channels like because of that i know what my next review is going to be because i'm always look like after kirby's epic yarn like you know did apps bombed nobody cares about kirby's epic yarn i had no idea how little people cared about this game but instead of getting angry at youtube or it's just no you learn from that mistake and you <laughs> to review other stuff but i was like looking at ant dude who's a pretty awesome youtuber sorted by um you know his most viewed content weirdly enough like nine of his top 10 videos are all videos about rom hacks mega man rom hacks sonic ron rom hack hacks <laughs> mario rom hacks and then after all these hack videos that all have like a half a million views one of his top regular views is crash twin sanity which i found very fascinating so that is what i'm going to do next because all that information is available out there to see what are other people doing that is successful and i guess my issue with people complaining about like i every i guess the complaining in general is if you're not going to change to improve your situation then yeah like you said stop complaining right and you're you know you can you can tweet at youtube on twitter and maybe they are listening but it's you know there's it's clear that they do they take that feed and then they go in the break room and they just laugh at all the obnoxious crap that gets tweeted at yeah because you know it's one dude and (laughs) it's just some poor community manager right (laughs) poor guy but but the the winds are clearly blowing in a certain direction and so you know i i would say don't stake your happiness on a system where you weren't even making any money to begin with um you know because like like you've said the numbers it's just you wouldn't you wouldn't have been bringing in that that big you know youtube money um like if youtube said <laughs> okay chris you don't get 400 dollars a month anymore like yeah i would be pretty livid right yeah but if they said chris we're 
reducing your monthly intake by a dollar forty three, I would just really have a hard time putting that much stock into it. I mean, well, that's the it's other. It's just not worth. Yeah, yeah, that's the other thing that I I put there is you know it. it you've got to realize that YouTube can always change its rules and um, it's possible in the future. I give a proposition of they get rid of subscriptions altogether, which sounds shut it down. They could say we've lost $2 billion on this experiment. It's over. Yeah. That's absolutely something that could happen. Um, The, you know, the the idea of getting your subscription sounds ridiculous, but you know, when, when I don't subscribe to shows on Netflix. Well, and that's the thing is when you look at, when I look I at my own, I could. when I look at my own viewer <laughs> habits, it's like, man, uh, my subscribers don't watch my videos. Like, what is this? Yeah. You know, mo- the majority of my views don't come from subscribers. Um, and that's kind of weird. Uh, I, I, you know, and they've changed the way that notifications works for videos and stuff like that. So they, it's clearly to them, not even important. The, the, the sub system, uh, it's, yeah, it's some people, some users, I, I've been trying to use, I think the home tab more like I'll go, I used to only look at my subscriptions tab and just look at what my, you know, people have subscribed to have posted, but I've been trying to use not the trending tab, forget that the home tab to kind of get those recommendations and broaden my YouTube horizon yeah. instead of saying in my little silo. And yeah, I've actually found a lot of new channels That's, by just going to that home tab I, and figuring it out. I'm the exact same way. I was fighting the system for so long, insisting that I should just, just every video that comes into my sub feed, but there's so much junk food and I'm not going to watch all of it. And honestly, I've started to be a little more vigorous in my unsubbing. And yeah, I'm doing the same thing where I honestly, I'm like, I, I need something fresh to find. Mm-hmm. And that's where I go to try to see something different and, and at least get something interesting and new into my subscriber feed. <laughs> my, you know, yeah. So uh, my, my next point was about accepting advice. So I am been failing at YouTube for a long time. I'm not the best person to get advice from. If you're looking to get more than 10,000 subscribers, I only know how to get to 10,000. I don't know how to get to a hundred thousand, but I'm going to figure it out. But I, I've never dismissed unilaterally the advice of the bigger YouTube channels. Pat Country does a a second podcast now called the Not So Common Podcast. And he's had, you know, people that I've watched like Metal Jesus and uh, Mark Bustler from Classic Game Room. He's had YouTubers that I have never heard of like Black Nerd Comedy and a bunch of others that I had no idea existed. And I absolutely like, I soaked all of those up. All of these great two hour conversations about YouTubers talking about about, you know, how they got to where they are or what they do to maintain, you know, just mm-hmm. how they interact with, like, I just soak it all up. I couldn't imagine me sitting here at a very small number being like, oh, I'm not going to listen to that guy. I'm going to do it my way. Like, I just, that's, that's ridiculous. That's in all phases of life. <laughs> Advice is so important. Not all of it's good, but yeah, well, it's okay to be mentored. I, I think it's that's okay to listen. Right. And I think that's what we're seeing is, is people are doubling down. You know, you have some people that I don't think they're being completely honest when, when they, so s- is your like Twitter feed filled with all of this as well of like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
just uh, so okay and i i actually <laughs> tweeted something about it as a joke but i realized that people might have thought that i was being serious and so i deleted it because i didn't i didn't want to be perceived as something um i do that a lot with twitter <laughs> i'll tweet something and just immediately delete it because i'm like no oh no buyer's remorse <laughs> um but yeah it's it's uh, you can you can double down on this and 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 blame yeah, I just I see people say, well, you know, I'm always doing this for myself. And and if that's the case, there's no need to say anything, really. You know, um, it's kind of funny how everybody's doing YouTube for a hobby right. until the monetization spigot gets turned off. Right. And then all of a sudden you realize that everybody was lying. And I don't mean everybody. A, a vocal minority on Twitter yeah. <laughs> was lying. Obviously, the people that are doing it for hobby don't go on Twitter and complain about trivial things. <laughs> but just the there was these four things that are, yeah, four things that just really bothered me. The The misleading people about the monetary value, not taking advice, not understanding how suggested videos work. Um, I just, yeah, it's just silly to me. Yeah. I have one final thing to say about this. Did you have anything else? No. All right. My final, I knew this, I was going to talk about this for a long time. (laughs) I was so annoyed. We're lucky we did this podcast today and not a few days ago. (laughs) (laughs) I hate, yeah. So the one thing I was sitting there thinking, I'm like, why does anybody care about a dollar forty three? Why does anybody care about a dollar forty three? And then it dawned on me there are still multi channel networks out there that what they do is they recruit millions or thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of tiny little YouTube channels promising to help them if they join their network and then they take anywhere from five to thirty percent of their ad revenue. Now five to thirty percent of a dollar forty three isn't very much, but when you multiply that out in the thousands, these multi channel networks, these MCNs have basically found a way to rip off millions of small channels and kind of scrape by a living. And I think a lot of these scummy, scammy MCNs are just going to go by the wayside. The one thing that they offer small channels that actually has perhaps some sort of value is they will pay you every month. You don't have to hit a $100 threshold because they have so many channels, they can pay you a dollar a month. And that's exactly what they do. Right. They're able to cash it out for you. And you would not believe if you go on Social Blade, which is a great website, just pluck in like every little channel you can think of or anybody that's complaining or big channels or somebody saying, oh, my God, there's a YouTube purge going on right now. And then you stick their name in there and you're like, no, there's no YouTube purge going on right now. You totally made that up. Look at the screenshot. Right. But it's I kind think- of, you know, it reminds me of unions when you're in a union, you get all these things and, and it's like, get upset about this. Um, and, and it's, it got to, it's got to be like that with an MCM where you get, you get, uh, an email saying this is happening. And, and you, if you go to your YouTube inbox, your messages, and then if it's not in the inbox, go to like the filtered for spam or whatever. I guarantee you have at least three invitations to join an MCN network. They're going to offer you all of these free tools for you. And yeah, it's all just bogus. Yeah. I get them all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's it, at first it's like flattering and you're like, oh, but then, you know, you do any, any amount of searching and you're like, oh, this isn't a good idea. 
it's funny you know i used to like go to their website and i kept like the emails would never say how they're going to help you they always offer you royalty free music they always offer you free analytics and they always offer you a community forum and tools and all those things and you know who does that too youtube youtube offers royalty free music youtube offers a creator program (laughs) youtube they do yeah they provide all of that stuff already so don't do an mcm yeah, just stay away. But I, I hope, I hope, because it pains right. me that these things exist to scam people out of their, you know, earnings. Like, I hope they die. Yeah, I hope. Well, and you know, there's what? None it's left. possible that that YouTube's seen a correlation between some of this with with those those MCNs, and maybe they're trying to put a nail in them. And uh, they gave them thirty days warning, basically. And. <laughs> Uh, I bet you, I bet you we're going to see less. Well, if, and well, I what I'll say too we is see less of these. if they go under and they can't sell off their, if there's no clause about switching or being moved to a different MCN, they're about to liberate a bunch of YouTubers too. And so yeah. I, I, there, oh, there, there have been YouTubers that I've seen that have stopped simply because they got with the wrong MCN and they realized what, what, how screwed they were. And so they just withdrew. And so it's possible that, you know, if they're signed for a lifetime thing that, that now some people can be freed of it. Don't give away your earnings for a bunch of free tools. And never once on any of these did they say, I'm going to help you grow your audience by doing X, Y, and B. I never once went to one of these websites where they're like, this is how we're going to help you. Here is our plan. Here is our track record of success. Like literally never. Yeah. All of them was the same thing. Free community forums, royalty free music and whatever else the other thing was and a first sentence of flattery basically yeah oh you're so good yeah no i'm not good man love your stuff man love your stuff man it's like oh wow really do you have a do you have a business email address no i'm not giving you my email address (laughs) (laughs) if you got something to say you can say it on private dm on twitter you can send me a youtube message or find me on Facebook. I'm the only Chris Genthy in the world. What is that? That's like the lamest beginning to a pitch. Can I have your business email? All right. So, so now line. that I've officially offended every small YouTuber in the entire world. Hey, I'm one. I wasn't on. offended. So I guess. I, well, you're reasonable. <laughs> All right. Three more pieces of news. Are you ready? I'm ready. Hit me. I don't have a lot to say. Season two of Netflix's Castlevania is coming this summer. And they're going to have eight episodes of the season instead of four. Woo. Woo. Yeah. I got nothing else. I'll watch that pretty. Yeah, I'll probably finish that the first weekend it's out and we'll talk about it on this show. Cool. Unless Matthew abandons me. I'm still here. (laughs) (laughs) This is weird. I literally have nothing to say about this, but Yuji Naka who for some reason gets credited as being the creator of Sonic, which is wrong, so I put father of Sonic, Mm. It got hired by Square Enix. So, what do you think that means? Nothing. (laughs) I did find it interesting, though, that uh, Yuji Naka left Sega during Sonic 06's development. Hmm... That what is a weird coincidence. I'm yeah. playing Sonic 06. Yuji Naka is in the news. Could be a sign. Yeah. All right. And then my favorite company in the entire world, Hyperkin, announces I saw the this. Super GB. This is pretty cool. 
this is kind of ridiculously awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it shouldn't be, but it just is. So this is a handheld portable system that plays black and white Game Boy games. Yeah. It's not a color screen. It is a old dot matrix display. Is it? What's the battery life on it? Did, did they say? I heard somebody say three hours, but I don't recall reading that. So I didn't put it in the notes. Mm. Yeah, it's it looks pretty. I'm ow. <laughs> I'm like, it's going to be really hard for me not to buy one of these. Yeah. Yeah, because it will serve no purpose to me. I can't use it on the channel to, you know, record footage or anything. Right. But uh, yeah, like after this, I'm going to go in the bedroom and play me some Super Monkey Ball Jr. Now that I realized I own it. And uh, I do actually play some handheld games uh, at night. Yeah. And I would love to play some of these Game Boy games, that's, you know, that's how in a I, more. That's how I convinced myself to buy uh, SteamWorld Dig 2. <laughs> what is SteamWorld Dig 2? Is that a handheld game? Is that Switch? Well, what is it? Well, it's cross-buy. That's what convinced me even more. And I can play it on the PS4 and on my Vita. Um, oh, you got a Vita. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's it's basically. What a deal, man. Yeah. Cross-play? Well, and it's you would be like losing money if you didn't buy it. I know it's like I got a half off for both systems, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's it's uh, the second one is more of a Metroidvania. The first one's kind of like that, but it's it's more uh, it's got a little bit of that. um, uh, Man, now it's leaving me. But that um, that flair of uh, uh, shoot. The genre of game I've been talking about like crazy. Oh, um, 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 um. oh I don't remember. <laughs> but uh, roguelike, it's it's got a little uh, bit of roguelike. It's like in a it. roguelike and a Metroid Castlevania. Yeah, thing. it's a little bit of that okay. both mixed together. But anyway, so this this thing is uh, I'm I'm all about it. I like the background, the backlight color. Um, are you partial to any particular color? I th- I've only seen the blue, but I really like it. They claimed in their, I think it was their press release. Otherwise, the I might have read it on Engadget, who was actually there. Hyperkin says there's going to be a, a wheel that you can turn to change the colors. Oh. So you can make it green, blue, red, or if it's LCD or LED backlight, you should be able to make it any color. If they have red, green, and blue in there, you can make any color. Yeah. So the pictures were all blue. I would do green. How could you not? Yeah. <sighs> or just damn like yeah because you're not supposed to look at blue light when you're in bed at night are yeah, you that's true yeah you gotta go green yeah ah uh, it's really cool i think this one's gonna be a big hit for them i have a ton of game boy games i do not have very many game boy color games by the time the game boy color came out um i was playing the dreamcast i mean i bought i got a game boy color early on I, off the top of my head i would say that was 1998 um but at, you know i got just a couple of games then the dreamcast came out and that was it i i just didn't play handheld games after that but i really dig the original Game Boy. I love the four color graphics. It plays really great on the Super Nintendo and it, that's just kind of my jam. So I I think this is just if there's not ghosting on the screen cuz I don't know where they source the screen from if it's not an LCD color panel, but like if there's not a lot of ghosting and it's got a pretty nice contrast, I would love this. Yeah. I would totally love it. I suspect 99 should be $100 built-in battery. Should, should get more details in June mm-hmm. E3. And I suspect the battery life is going to be ridiculous. Um, with the three hours, doesn't seem logical, does it? No, I think it's going to be a lot, a lot higher than that. Um, yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah, you know, that when it's a small, tiny. Well, I guess it's emulation, so it's not like an old Z eighty. 
That's true. Oh, wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> a real handheld Game Boy. <laughs> I hadn't even thought of it. It's got to be emulation. But still, I just, yeah, it looks cool. It looks like a, what were they called? The Game Boy Lite, that Japanese-only backlit Game Boy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. I. It sounds so stupid, but when I see it and think about playing like Link's Awakening or Super Mario Land 2, I've got a stack of Game Boy games that I forgot I bought. No, that's not true. I have a stack of Game Boy games I'd like to play. I picked up uh, Kirby's Dream Land 2 that I'd really like to get to. I picked up Castlevania. Not Castlevania. I picked up last week. I was talking about um, Final Fantasy Adventure. So there's a bunch that I would love to play, and that would be a really cool way to play it. You know, at least for the first run. Yeah, I, it's it's one of those things where for me it just is something that uh, the way my brain works. But it it was like ah, I I never thought that I'd want to see something like that. But you know, those old Game Boy LCD screens and stuff they're just not they're not going to make it because of uh the way that the I've, what do they call it i can't even they're so unplayable they're yeah. so blurry it's because and they didn't used to be like that that's the thing is that there's something with the liquid crystal that over time the the rate at which it it the on off happens is it gets slower and it gets slower worse and worse. yeah so you get that ghosting effect it's on any scrolling game anything where you've got multiple items moving around and stuff it's 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 virtually un, unusable it's like watching it's like playing a game cam <laughs> no yeah, the game boy the, is such a yeah uh, the, i've talked about it a million times the game boy is just this graveyard of all of these cheap games that are brilliant that nobody talks about yeah and the sound ah oh, mm. yeah mm. so you know what else they showed off hyperkin they the retron 77 made an appearance in the hands of billy mitchell oh did he do his thumbs up I don't remember because I was looking at his mullet, but yeah, <laughs> I guess this thing must still exist, even though they haven't announced another release date or anything, but it was neat to see the prototype again. This is something I really want. I want to play some really good yeah. quality Atari 2600. Well, we, I mean, we talked about the emulator issues, um, but it's not impossible that there are emulators that they could, they could easily license out. If not, maybe they have something else up their sleeve. Um, with regards to that, but it, it's not impossible for this thing to exist. Um, so. Well, you know, the Atari Flashback 2 and 2 Plus were made by a company or was designed by a company. I forget what it's called. They're on Atari Age a lot, something engineering. But they could just call those guys and just get a real Atari instead of worrying about licensing an emulator. They could just pay this guy to design something. There's other options out there. Yeah, it's true. I wish I remembered his name. I'm just not doing him justice. But the guy that engineered the Flashback 2 and 2 Plus, which are real Ataris on you know, a redesigned brand new chip, not emulation. I mean, there's other options out there. Yeah, it's true. And, and honestly, a complete hardware solution is potentially much cheaper. Um, because the emulation requires, you know, even more hardware than what is necessary for, for something like an Atari 2600. So, or any of the, the 77, what is the 77 again? What are they? Uh, 2600. Yeah. The 2600. So came out in 1977. Oh, that's right. Jeez. Why didn't I know that? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Cause it's a good, I wasn't born yet. (laughs) You weren't born no, yet. No, I did not exist we're just, yet. We're just stupid millennials. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, 
Let's move on to your game maker topics. Yeah, well, um, I just wanted to hit up on this because I got asked a couple of times while I was streaming and, and actually on Twitter as well. Um, uh, one of the, Somebody I was talking to uh, put it in an interesting way, but he's like, you actually know how to program, don't you? I was like, yeah, I, I do. <laughs> uh, um, but how do you learn how to program? And, uh, one of the, well, the way it was put is how, how did I learn how to, and, uh, I was self-taught and a quick backstory is that, uh, when I was about 12, I got it in my head. I, I mentioned it last, uh, uh, or two episodes ago when I was talking about wanting to make a, make a game, but, uh, I got in, you know, I got into wanting to make games and I didn't have a lot of resources available to, available to me because of our financial uh, situation when I was younger. And so I was able to get my hands on my dad's old, uh, um, Apple two. And, uh, as a result, um, uh, was able to use that and go to the library and get some programming books for, for, uh, basic on Apple basic? and yeah. And some assembly stuff as well. And, um, it's funny that one of the first things I started making on it was a Pac-Man clone. And, but I learned that with basic, it just wasn't going to happen. The, at least with what I was understanding at the time. But anyways, moving on, I, I worked at for a local ISP and was able to pick the brain of somebody who knew how to program. And, uh, he gave me some good starting points with that and, and got into Linux in the nineties and, and basically just always kept my foot in programming and, and learning and, and learning different languages and, and things like that and using the command line and all those things all helped. But here I wanted to give some advice, uh, s- some quick bullet points, um, kind of like my eBay seller guide, uh, stuff that I had, uh, done a couple of, uh, episodes ago how to teach yourself how to program. And these are just like things that I've learned over time. This isn't like a step-by-step thing. Uh, the first thing I'll say is you, tutorials are are really useful, but there's something that um, you want to avoid if you find yourself basically copying and pasting the code in the video or just typing along and not quite understanding what's going on. Um, that it should be a warning sign to yourself that you're not picking up anything that the tutorial is trying to teach you or it isn't teaching you it at all and is only putting you through the motions of how to make something appear on your screen or whatever it is that you're attempting to learn uh, from a programming language. Um, The other big thing is to learn when you're stuck on a problem and you're not making any headway and when to take a break. Um, And... That that is something that is really a person to person thing, but I think learning when to pull yourself away from the problem and come back to it is uh, is something that is really really important when you're when you're learning to program, so that you don't find yourself uh, in getting frustrated really, especially early on. Um, the other thing that I'll say is most programming languages have uh, dedicated help documentation. Uh, PHP has their, their php.net website, uh, game maker has their GML reference. Um, but learn the, to go to the help files for the language itself and learn how to navigate those help files. Uh, and, uh, usually they have like a starting point where you can read about the basics of the language, but familiarize yourself with the help documents and, and learn them and learn the way that they communicate information. Uh, and when you do this over time, you'll find that you can reference those docs a lot easier and learn the language of, of, uh, 
that the that the programming language is used, the the words and the terminology that it uses to um, uh, talk talk about uh, itself. Because that's one of the harder things is to describe what it is you're trying to do and how you're trying to do it when when you're learning something new in programming. Um, the other thing is don't uh, as much as possible try to start from the ground up when you're when you're doing any sort of programming. Like try to make something, set a goal out for yourself, and say I'm going to make a program that does this, and use the la- the language that you're learning. And as soon as you hit a stopping point, go okay, I don't understand this. And I need to, and take that as a challenge and go, go out and, and try to understand what it is that you don't understand. That's just a reoccurring theme in programming. Um, and the last thing is that I'll say as a piece of advice is to, uh, learn. Um, so yeah, learn what you don't understand, um, and tackle understanding it, which ties into the last one. Uh, so programming is like speaking a language. There's, it takes lots of repetition. It takes memorization. And it takes practice. Uh, so th- those are the those are the key things to to getting better at a programming language. And it takes a lot of persistence. And it's it's frustrating a lot of times because computers are true or false, right? The whole thing is logical gates. It's all reason and logic. And so you kind of have to reprogram how you think about things as well because you can't just use. Um, you know, English to say, Hey, just do this. Uh, and I think, I think these are some starting points that if, if you're interested in learning how to program, maybe these little bits of information, my, my little spiel will help you, uh, on your efforts to learn how to program. So I just wanted to put that out there. I think the, uh, the last one is I, I enjoy computer programming. I wish it was something that I was able to pursue a long time ago before it all passed me by. Um, but yeah, it's very much like speaking a different language and not, there's no verbs and nouns. It's all very different, but I, I, the problem solving aspect of it is what really I enjoyed about it. And I almost found it therapeutic in a way. It's, it's actually kind of like playing a video game. I remember when I was making Yahtzee, like how the hell do you figure out if you have a full house through if then statements yeah, and variables, like how do you get that to work? correctly every time because you have to rethink like you can you and i just look at okay there's three there's two but that's not how a computer talks and i remember when i finally got that really finding it you know satisfying i accomplished something that nobody else in the class is going to do it was wonderful yeah and it it is a different way of thinking it's very much like learning a language but it it is um, I, I felt the same way, dude. That's uh, I why guess I, it gives a little insight into our feelings on YouTube because <laughs> we look at things very logically and binary. Right. And I think that's, that's, it is, you said it's called it therapeutic and that's what it's always been for me because it is as much as the restrictions are these inhibitors, they're also what's so freeing about it because that's when you get that everything, it, it makes sense. English doesn't make sense. No. You know, um, but we know how to speak it because we've we've done it again and again and again. Um, but when you look at you look at new words and how they come about and 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 we're borrowing from other languages and uh, it doesn't it doesn't actually make a lot of sense when it when it's all stitched together. But uh, programming, once you get certain things, everything sort of starts to click together. 
Um, it's so funny. It makes me think now of Photoshop, and I felt like the same therapeutic sort of vibe when we'd get. I, I took a semester of Photoshop um, back in 2009 or 2010, and having like a three hour project is and trying to figure out how to solve problems creatively instead of logically. Well, I guess there was a lot of logic to Photoshop as well. If you're a high level user, it gave me that very same sort of here. There is a problem that you need to solve in a completely different way. And finally getting past those problems was really enjoyable. Yeah. And then that kind of brings it to editing video. There's the problem of how am I going to present this complex thought into both words and a visual form to make it comprehensible for somebody watching. Yeah. Now that's many more steps away from programming, but it gives me the same thing. How am I going to tell how, like explaining how a game feels in written and visual form is very challenging. Yeah. And I enjoy that challenge. Your program, what you're writing is something that is for a human being to understand in so much as in programming, you're writing something so a machine can understand. <laughs> so it's it's almost the exact same problem, but the, a different deliverable, I guess. You the could opposite. Yeah. So, yeah. It's all very yeah interesting. I, yeah, I mean, I wish sometimes I wish life went a different way, but it is what it is. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. So I uh, let's go ahead and move on to the streaming picks. I picked something that is along these same lines and I was going to pick something else and I'll just save it for the next episode. Um, But then when I saw that you were talking about your ghost AI, it kind of made me want to pick this instead. And this is a Netflix documentary called AlphaGo. Have you heard of the Google's DeepMind machine learning AI and how it played Go, I believe, last year? A little bit, yeah, actually. And before this event occurred, have you ever heard of the game Go? No, I know it's a really big in Japan. I think it's in, I think it's bigger in Asia, Korea, China, Japan. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, I mean, that's all. It's, uh, you know, the opposite side of the world that we're on. Yeah. I never heard of Go. So when this was making like the news, whenever this was a year ago, I it didn't really mean much to me, but it was fascinating watching this documentary. So it's called AlphaGo, and it's about Google's DeepMind machine learning, and it's about how they programmed artificial intelligence to actually learn how to play a game instead of giving it strategies and stuff like that. It just makes it figure out itself. And the documentary starts off with the AI... Google's DeepMind learning how to play Breakout. And these nerdy programmers, for whatever reason, had never played Breakout before, or at least in a serious level. And after 200 games, when they came back, the AI had figured out that in Breakout, what you want to do is break out the left or right side of the screen, building a well, and then let the ball bounce along the top where you don't have to do anything. Am I exp- am I painting a good visual picture? Or yes. No? I, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the AI figured it out on its own. And I found that really fascinating. 
that it just like scary too. My fear is like AI is going to be like, yeah, the earth would be better without people. And then Skynet happens. <laughs> I think that's every, everyone's fear, especially when you see robotics and how quickly they can. Uh, it's like, oh, we're doomed. Yeah. They're going to know, they're going to know we shouldn't be here and we're messing it all up. But anyway, the rest, uh, it, I was hoping for more of that type of story when I went into this documentary because I find that fascinating but a majority of the movie was on this um, five game battle um, the the AlphaGo program versus the South Korean player and sort of the emotional up and down of are you rooting for the human are you rooting for the AI what does this say about us being people um, when you know the player loses his first game to the AI like he's very like depressed about it like he had just you know got crushed by a real person the whole thing is really very fascinating yeah and i found it very enjoyable the only thing i didn't like about it it's a neat story and it's just up my wheelhouse so i enjoyed it anyway but i think as a documentary the they didn't always do a good job of capturing some of that emotional stuff, that man versus machine machine aspect that to me is the most important about machine learning AI. It very much felt like, I don't know, somebody at, <laughs> felt like an IT guy at Google made the movie, to be honest with you. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it doesn't it didn't feel like a filmmaker made it. But as a whole, I mean, you know, it's above average and worth a watch. Yeah, it's really fascinating stuff. And it's 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 interesting to watch this become something that is accessible to anyone. The, the, there are AI platforms that you can use. Uh, and I watched the video recently of somebody who had taught their AI how to play Mario Kart or super Mario Kart. Um, nice. and so, uh, this stuff is becoming accessible and it's it, to me, the interesting part will be when are we going to see some mom and pop equivalent of somebody utilizing AI to their ends and what does that look like? That'll Somebody's be- going to use AI to make YouTube videos that perfectly are optimized for the algorithm. Yeah. Well, that's actually kind of already happening. I I know. There's. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Um, well, my my pick is... Uh, Sorry, AlphaGo, Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> my pick's not quite as... Uh, I guess they're kind it of... It has a better ending? Well, no, it, it's related. Maybe. It's actually related a lot. Uh, because of, uh, different reasons. Um, so if you grew up in the nineties, uh, there was a particular, uh, sketch, uh, police sketch of, uh, individual known as the Unabomber, uh, that, uh, you just saw it everywhere. You saw it on the news. Um, and this was an individual who was sending mail bombs, seemingly random, uh, to, to individuals, some of them working for universities, others in uh, government positions. And uh, the reason why the name Unabomber happened was because there was a connection between universities and airliners. Uh, he did uh, also have a bomb go off on, a, on an airline as well. Uh, so this is a, a Netflix, uh, it's on Netflix, but it's a Discovery Channel series that, that ran. It's called Manhunt Unabomber. And it is a dramatization of the uh, investigation and uh, uncovery of who, who the individual was that was uh, uh, responsible for these bombings. And it's it's a very good show. It's eight 
episodes long, if I'm not mistaken. It's they're all an hour each, and uh, I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. I know there were some liberties taken with uh, with in, in terms of the investigators involved, um, but as far as my recollection goes, uh, it did very much. It was accurate to what what's occurred and uh what the public saw and and more interestingly to me was what was happening behind the scenes and how they how they caught this guy but eventually he had caused so much fear and panic in the in the public that he was able to get his manifesto published in the washington post and that manifesto was pretty much an anti-technology like screed um Anyways, I I can't do enough justice to to how fascinating this is. Um, it's a little graphic, and uh, there are some moments when you know something bad is going to happen, and it's it's uh, you know if if that's something that that would bother you, I I wouldn't recommend watching it. But um, it is a really um, really fascinating um, story, and uh, it has very interesting story te- techniques where it's jumping d- between time, and then eventually, who you're following in the in this story kind of flips on you. Um, and it's just it's really an interesting um, uh, dramatization of those events, and um, definitely recommend watching it because there's a lot of uh, insights into it. I found myself on Wikipedia afterwards, just looking a lot of stuff up to be like, is this, was this real? Did this really happen? And everything where I was like, was this, this, was this, was this right? Like it was unbelievable what wasn't covered in, in, in the series, but, um, it's just an interesting sort of detective story. I'll put it that way. Uh, and, and there's real stakes at, at, at play yeah. to human, human lives and things like that. So definitely uh, recommend it. Um, little, little, graphic but uh not not all the time there's just moments that are very tense um because of the nature of his his crimes so if you're not netflix yeah if you're not familiar with it i I didn't want to say anything else because i kind of want younger audience to go on the ride that that we went on in the 90s or at least i remember everyone sort of being (laughs) panicked about it well when you live in wisconsin (laughs) you just don't worry about things like that (laughs) yeah we had i think Dahmer. so yeah 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 anyway manhunt unabomber and alphago both on netflix both worth a stream yeah I was wrong, Michael. I was wrong, Matthew. (laughs) I don't know why I said Michael. I was wrong, Matthew. I did not think we would get to this point on the outline. Oh, God. (laughs) And that is the cheap game segment. Collecting old games can be expensive, but it doesn't have to be. So in this segment, we're going to talk about one game (laughs) that's $10 or less that you can buy today that is totally worth your time. (laughs) I, uh, I picked... Kirby's Pinball Land, and I was surprised I hadn't talked about this on the podcast. I feel like I have, but I guess it's it's been a couple years since I've talked about this. Uh, This is a really good pinball game for the Game Boy um, made by HAL Laboratories, Um, and it's it's their second pinball game. So they made another pinball game that was supposedly really solid on the Game Boy. I don't have it, um, but Kirby's Pinball Land is really excellent. There are three tables. Each are three screens 
Green's tall. Uh, the Kirby's the ball, obvious. Well, maybe not obviously. Kirby is the ball, and the it's a bit floaty, so it's pretty easy to kind of keep things into play, which is really nice. It's very much it's very much arcade-like and not realistic. And what I really enjoyed about this is how easy it is to learn the rules of the tables and figure out what different modes do and how to progress from the bottom of the table up to that third screen and eventually a boss or a like a side screen bonus game um it's just really a lot of times when i play pinball games particularly realistic ones i have no idea how to progress forward and in not being a hardcore pinball fan it isn't always obvious to me uh, but kirby's pinball land is it's presented in unfolds in a way that anybody can kind of figure out what's going on and what you actually need to do to beat the game which i love and then because it is a kirby game it has that amazing game boy music it has all of those kirby enemies and items that are nice to look at and that kirby 8-bit graphic style and i can honestly say to this day it is my favorite pinball game ever man on the game boy of all places i know i can't wait to use my my uh my retron gb to play kirby's pinball land this is a game i have not completed yet i have not beat all three boss i believe when i was a kid i have beaten all the three bosses just not on the same playthrough so i have not beat the game to the best of my knowledge but i'd like to someday yeah that's man i just gotta hand it to him i mean that's a feat for uh a good pinball game on the on the game boy i mean the limitations that you're dealing with to communicate it's a ridiculously pinball. low resolution right that's incredible um it have you ever seen a video or no, watched anything no. on this I, game I knew at all? it was on the i knew it was on the game boy but uh i haven't seen any anybody like review it or, or watched any gameplay myself nice yeah. This is a weird one. There's like dozens of the Japanese version of this on eBay for like three bucks. I don't know if those are pirated or real. Um, I've just found it really strange that there were so many Japanese Game Boy games on eBay for $1.50 shipping. That doesn't really seem right to me, but what do I know? Um, but U.S. versions of this game from U.S. sellers run from five to seven bucks, and it's fantastic. Well, go out and get it. It's my recommendation, too. I highly oh. recommend it. <laughs> two for one. One for two. <laughs> it is really good, though. Like, I, I just, I want to, I, I think I, when I finally get to Kirby's Dreamland 2 on the Game Boy, I think I will probably make one video where I review all three Kirby's Game Boy games, and I think that will be a more successful way to present it. So Kirby's Dreamland, Kirby's Pinball Land, and Kirby's Dreamland 2 all together in one video, I think is going to be the way I'm going to do it. And I can't wait to get there. Until it's like 10 hours in and I still can't beat the damn game. <laughs> That'll be like, curse this thing! Yeah. I'm so sorry for recommending this. <laughs> All right. We had one question from Oscar on Twitter who says, any opinion on Skyforce Remastered or Skyforce Reloaded for the Xbox One? I think it's an addictive space shooter. I had never heard of this. And... Um, so I had to, I had to go on to, I had to find it. So I found the company's website and watched their videos on these games. And I think I've been, I've, I'm a big shmup fan, but I feel like I have been missing out on maybe an independent resurgence of the genre. 
Yeah. Because well, a decade ago on the 360, there was a lot of uh, shooters for the Japanese Xbox 360. For some reason, a company called Cave released a lot of their games exclusively on the 360, and I imported a few of them. Um, and there, I think I only own two at this point. My favorite being, I think it's Mushi Fima Sumitari. I, I'm just pulling that off the top of my head that I did not sell, but the rest of them were a bit too hard for me. But a lot of these more recent cave games have a lot of um, like easy modes for people of my skill level that makes the game very much more playable. Um, but I'm, I was neat to watch this because unlike a cave shooter, which is generally all sprites, this is fully, you know, 3D kind of has like a high definition Dreamcast vibe to it, which I thought looked really interesting. Um, and I was kind of surprised that people are making games like this, to be honest. Well, yeah, side scrolling a shooter and then you on idiot. top of that. These are all over the app store and I just have no idea. Well, the other thing is, is <laughs> like to me, what's what especially is interesting is that it's uh, it's a, a vertical scroller, right? Um, yes. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I don't. I feel like uh, that's even kind of a more interesting to me. Uh, I don't know why. I feel like I had better luck with the vertical ones than with with the horizontal scr- uh, scrollers, like uh, like R type. R type. Yeah. Oh man, I love Super R type. But <laughs> whoa. I actually I can beat Super R type on easy. I don't think I can beat it on normal. Yeah. Um, someday <laughs> but yeah, yeah like 1980 uh what was 1945 or the those 42 42 yeah those those ones were were uh i or love those speed. ones yeah and I, I, it must be something about the limitations of the of the i don't know what it it can't be any i don't know what it is exactly that that i i'm maybe it's just the way my eyes work and and following a, a scrolling screen um but i feel like i had better luck a with lot them. of people have preferences over vertical or horizontal i'm not sure if it matters to me but maybe i'm just some sort of elitist that thinks i can do everything i don't know (laughs) well you can always just lay on the couch and then tilt your head right it's the exact same thing there you go (laughs) but sadly i've never i know i'm just again way off my radar sky force reloaded i do have an xbox one now as we talk about not buying games that we're never going to beat, <laughs> <laughs> that's terrible. I yeah, I uh, appreciate the question. I I just feel bad that I I'm not able to contribute much to it myself. Uh, but I, there was another shooter I, I saw recently that was all black and white and kind of stylized to look like a, a film reel that reminded me a lot of Cuphead, but it's a, a scroller. That's uh, cool. Yeah, it's it's cool to. I think there is a bit of a. Um, kind of a resurgence just like with uh, adventure games going on with uh there you know there's a tail the long tail of the audience that the bigger market isn't trying to take a bite out of that these these smaller guys can come in i think i could i'm just spitballing here i think for like a 15 year period people only made bullet hell shooters and the audience for that kind of hardcore challenge is pretty small. And I remember, I think on the Xbox 360 in the, in the indie store, I don't know what it's called. The Xbox live indie something arcade. I don't know, but there was a game for $1 and I think it was just called like shoot one up. And I remember being pretty engrossed by that because it really did have a lot of difficulty levels you could turn it way down and it was way too easy or you could turn it way up and it was impossible and i kind of found this sweet spot this like little dollar shmup on the 360 indie store that you would never find and it was it was pretty awesome so somewhere around there this started i guess 
Damn, that's the beauty of having independent releases on the Switch and the Xbox One and the PlayStation Network. Yeah. Thanks. Well, I guess we could thank Apple for that, right? The App Store. That's what started it all in 2007. Yeah. Anybody can make programs. You can make a Pac-Man game and then change out the Pac-Man for a lawnmower and then the ghost for a gopher and boom. Blood everywhere and it's a it hit. to the yes. world. You have to come up with a good name for Landscapers that. everywhere. Give it two thumb, two glorious thumbs up. <laughs> or one and a half thumbs up because they're missing part of their thumb. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> But thanks, thanks for the <laughs> thanks for the question, Oscar. I'm sorry I couldn't bring in, bring more into it. And that, I wish we could. You should. I wish you. I don't know what I'm trying to say. That robot voice. I, we need to like get you to just say this whole thing in that sweet Microsoft Sam voice. <laughs> like, <laughs> for that the, is, you don't have to try. That's it. I just. <laughs> I could. I could give it a shot. <laughs> All right, go for it. <clears throat> that is going to do it for today's episode. If you'd like to leave a comment or questions, hit us up on Twitter at Implant and at Cricket. That's K-R-I-K-I-T. Use hashtag IPG podcast. Otherwise, leave a comment on Facebook slash Implant Games or on the website ImplantGames.com. Until next time, guys, have a great week. (laughs) 